it's good to be together. It's good to gather together and be in the Lord's presence. My name is Paul Buckley, um, and if you're new here, we're so glad you're here. If you've joined us online, we pray God's blessing on you as you watch us uh, in our corporate worship, such an important part of our week. And we are going to consider this topic today as we're going through the book of Genesis. We'll be in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And again, uh, if you don't have a, uh, a Genesis journal, I encourage you to get one. There's still some available at the back. We purchased those for our people to use to take notes as we go through the scriptures. Most of our uh, sermons are following through books of the Bible. And Lord willing, over the course of a lifetime, I think if we keep on doing this as a church, you would have notes from much of the, the entirety of the Bible, perhaps. Uh, so I encourage you to take notes there and to keep that for your own use. So those are at the back. You can get them there. Um, we are making our way through. We've just done one chapter so far, and uh, I trust that you've been seeing a lot of key and core, really foundational truths in just this one chapter. We've learned about the purpose of creation. We've learned about uh, humankind and who we are and, and what we're called to do. We've learned about the reality of the Creator Himself and, and the expression of His glory. Uh, such, an, such important topics, really, for understanding reality, understanding ourselves. And, and that's just one chapter so far. Uh, we're going to continue. And today, we're going to look at the beginning of chapter 2. Chapter divisions in your Bible uh, are not from God necessarily. I'm not saying they're evil, uh, but, but it's not in the originals. The originals didn't have chapter divisions. Some smart people at some point in time thought, hey, this would be helpful. And overall, it is pretty helpful, but sometimes it's not. And I think this chapter division here, separating uh, the beginning of chapter 2 from chapter 1, isn't the best choice. So this is connected to what we've been reading in chapter 1. Uh, this is going to be a description of the seventh day. This is going to address some of these important issues that we've been talking about already, but in what I trust will be a practical way, because there's a design here in God's creation in these seven days and in the application of it that is really to go beyond just theology, as important as that is, as foundational as that is, but to take theology and apply it to our lives in a practical way. And matter of fact, we're doing it here today, so we'll get there. But we want to dig into God's Word. We want to learn the truths. He has things for us in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I'll tell you ahead of time what I believe this teaches, and we'll dig into it. I believe it teaches that the Sabbath is a profound and eternal reminder that we exist to enjoy God and worship Him forever. The Sabbath is a profound and eternal reminder that we exist to enjoy God and worship Him forever. That's what this teaches us. We'll look at some of the different components as we go through it, but first let's pray and ask God to speak to us through His Word. Lord, we thank You so much for these three verses. We thank You so much for how You made all things, how You formed them, how You filled them, and, and how You recorded it in Your Word that we might understand it according to what You want us to know. We thank You for the life that comes from this. Thank you for the help that comes from it. and We ask you now to speak to us. We want to experience your truth and your life. And Lord, uh, help us to, to never take for granted the, the blessing, the privilege that we get to gather in your name and through, through human beings, imperfect, limited, weak, and sinful human beings, you, the eternal, infinite God, communicate life-giving, uh, eternal life-giving 
truths. You make your presence known to us. Thank you, God, for who you are. We love you. We love your ways. So give us minds and hearts to receive your word, to understand, believe, and to walk in these things, to obey you and love you and love others in your, your name, we pray. We thank you so much. Amen. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, Thus the heavens and earth, the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all, the, all his work that he had done in creation. These three verses fit together. They are a conclusion to the creation account that we've been reading. Uh, they are a conclusion to the this, this seven days. And you probably are noticing some things about this section that are a little bit different than what we've seen so far. Maybe you've noticed that there's no mention of evening and morning the seventh day. It's not there. Every other day, it would finish with it was evening and morning the nth day, whatever it was. You also might notice that it's a little awkward when we read it in English. It's again some more that Yoda speak. It's like things are kind of ordered funny and repetitious. And so that's a clue that this is probably, and well it is, Hebrew poetry. And, and so there's poetry, Hebrew poetry going on, and Hebrew poetry is different than English poetry. English poetry, much of it is about rhyming vowels uh, and structures and so forth. Hebrew poetry uh, really doesn't rhyme vowels. If it rhymes things, it actually rhymes consonants. It makes consonants uh, be sound alike. But it repeats things, and it, it emphasizes things, and it, it's said in certain structures to, to bring clarity. And so that's what's going on here. And, and it's hard always, of course, to translate things uh, into English. And so maybe if I could rephrase these three verses for you, it will help bring some clarity to, to what's being said. And really, the, the goal in this is to understand the, the impact. Well, what, what, what's the emphasis here? What, what should we really understand? There's a lot of things we could look at in these three verses, but what is, what is it saying overall? What, what should we understand? So let me submit to you uh, a translation of this passage to reread it. Um, so do we have this to project? The next one. There we go. Thank you. Thus the heavens and the earth and all their hosts were finished. Elohim, that's the word for God, finished the work he had crafted on the seventh day. And he rested from all the work he had crafted on the seventh day. And he blessed and hallowed the seventh day. Because Elohim rested from all his works he had created to craft. This is another translation that, that tries to uh, make the poetry and the repetition a little clearer. You probably heard certain things repeated there, right? Certain words that are used and, and emphasized and, and you hear. And that's really, those are the three points that I want to make based on those words. As you look, you probably, as you look at that, you see this idea of him finishing the work. There's work, and it gets finished. It's completed. So we're going to talk about the finished work. Uh, you see stuff about rest. That's emphasized. He rested. Uh, we see that a couple times. And I want to talk about that. And then, of course, you see the seventh day very prominently featured. Uh, in the Hebrew language, it's put like right in the middle of those sentences. All of those sentences are actually seven words each, and right in the middle of those seven words is the seventh day. 
And so that's repeated three times. You see that in this translation where I put it at the end, so we would hear that. And so we want to talk about the seventh day, this holy day. That's the title of the message. In all this, what I think the scripture wants us to get, what God wants us to get, is that the Sabbath is a profound and eternal reminder that we exist to enjoy God and worship Him forever. So let's dig in. Let's talk first about the finished work. Finished is used a couple of times in this paragraph. God has finished things. He's, he created things, He formed them, and then He fills them, right? That's what we've seen in the six days. He, he brings order and purpose. There's chaos in the beginning. He orders things. He creates these forms. Then he fills them with, with birds and fish and animals and the, fills the sky with stars and the lights. And then he puts mankind as the pinnacle of creation over all things to be kings and priests in this cosmic, glorious cosmic temple. That's what's been going on. But here it says he finished. He finished it. And it says it repeats it. So what is it saying? Is, is it trying to just help us understand maybe we didn't think it was finished and it just wants to emphasize that? Is there, what's going on in repeating finishing? What, what does that mean? Um, well, again, I think understanding that, that creation is a cosmic temple is an important point here. That's part of what, what God's getting at through his word. And by the way, we see this idea of the cosmic temple throughout and we're going to see it uh, in other aspects in chapter 2 when we get there, some very close connections to the actual tabernacle. But we see general connections, of course, in the six days, and the seventh day being the goal. And we see uh, different scriptures, like Isaiah 66.1. It says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? He's asking a question about the temple and the tabernacle, saying, this is my tabernacle. This is my temple, heaven. Is my throne, the earth is my footstool. All of creation is, the, is my temple where I make my glory known. Psalm 78, uh, 69. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. So there's a comparison, explicit comparison. Not just implicit, poetic, but explicit comparison between the temple and, and the place of worship and creation itself. But then also, we read later on in the book of Exodus, we went through Exodus a little while ago, very similar language to what we see here in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 when Moses is building the tabernacle. Now remember, this is written to the people of God on their way out of Egypt and written to them as they're actually in process of doing some of these things. So they perhaps would have heard more clearly some of this similar language that we have to actually go to a whole other book and, and read. But you can see in the book of Exodus similar language to this finished language, to this completion language. Exodus 39, 43, and Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord commanded them, so they had done it, then Moses blessed them. Very similar to what we've seen in the creation account uh, earlier on in that chapter. Thus all the work of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Exodus 40, and he erected, erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Similar language. Creating these things, completing the work, blessing it. Similar language to what we've been seeing. And then in the actual temple, we see similar stuff in 2 Chronicles 7.11 when that gets built much later. It says, thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord, and in his own house he successfully completed, successfully accomplished. 
So this finishing here is what? What's going on? What is meant by, by emphasizing finishing? Is it, is it speaking of an absolute total sense that God's done making anything? He's not going to make anything else ever again? Is that the, the finishing of the work? Or is it better to understand it as the finishing of the temple? The completion of the temple. He's finished the work and preparing this temple. It's done. And now it's time to use it. That's what's being said here. That's what is meant on the seventh day. God's finished. He's completed. The tabernacle, the temple's complete. There's no more work. The temple doesn't have to be further modified. It's ready for use. It's now to be enjoyed and employed in God's purpose. That's what the word finished means here. As we look at the rest of Scripture, it makes me think actually of my parents, their first house. Uh, my my parents, like a lot of the generation, uh, moved out of the city. They were from Boston. They moved out to the suburbs, and they bought a house in 1960, an unfinished cape in Chelmsford, Mass. 80 Lock Road still is there to this day. Um, they moved out of the city. They had an opportunity to buy a house. They had uh, one child at that point, my infant at the time, older sister. They're part of this exodus of Bostonians to the suburbs, and they bought a, a, an unfinished cape. It, 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 didn't, it wasn't done yet. And my dad actually did the work. He uh, finished the upstairs, made two bedrooms and a full bath for us. My brothers, uh, we all were in one room. And I remember it as a kid, it was the biggest room in the world. It's probably a little tiny room. And then a room for my sister. And then he built a family room and a garage, a two-car two garage. And to this day, if you visit it, you'll see my dad's work. He finished that work, but what was the purpose of his work? It was to raise a family. And they went on to have three more children, and we had some wonderful years there in our house. He finished that work for the sake of a family, and that's what's being said here in Scripture. God finished his work. He finished the work of creation to make this place for, for his glory to be put on display for his beloved people to act as kings and priests, to fill the whole earth and, and to lead in the enjoyment and worship of God in all things. That's what's being said here in Genesis chapter 2. Now, as we'll see soon in chapter 3, something happens. This beautiful finished home, this finished temple gets disturbed. It's like a violent tornado rips through the neighborhood, tears up the house. It's no longer quite as it was designed to be. It's now unfinished. It's broken. It's out of place. It's not operating in the way that, that God designed. And of course, the, the kings and queens, the kings and priests put in charge themselves are torn up and broken and separate from God, alienated from Him. It's disturbed. And the storyline of Scripture is about God not just leaving it there, but coming to again finish the work to complete the work. And that's seen ultimately in Christ's coming. Christ comes and He Himself is the ultimate temple. He is the place where we meet God. He is the place where we experience God in Christ Himself. He is the fulfillment of the temple. He is actually the, the pinnacle, the ultimate pinnacle uh, of creation. And in John chapter 2, it's, it's, He makes that explicitly clear. He cleanses the temple, and they get upset, and he, and he says to them in John 2, 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of the body, of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that, what, that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus comes as that temple, and he comes to finish the work in his life and in his death. He comes to restore the brokenness and set things in order and to create a perfect, flawless temple. He lives a righteous life. He obeys God completely. He fulfills the creation mandate in his life and his imaging God perfectly. Obeying God, trusting God, loving others. And then that righteous life as the perfect human and God himself in the flesh is offered up on the cross. And Jesus says something incredibly profound on the cross that we should hear as a reverberation of Genesis chapter 2, 1 to 3. It says this in John 19, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so he put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. So they did. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He finished the work on the cross. He repaired the brokenness through his death. His death for our sins is a complete fixing of our problem. He pays for our sins in full. He earns the right to reign and to rule and to overcome. And the Father raises him on the third day, victorious over sin and death, sets him on the throne. He ascends and he's reigning now and he will return and he will finish the work in its fullness. This work that was finished by his death. The implications will be brought fully when he returns and restores all things. And so we see in Revelation 21, it says, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. This is speaking of the Alpha and the Omega, the one who completes all things. He will finish it completely. He comes to finish the work. And just like in Genesis 2, there's a call implied here to enter into the finished work. Adam and Eve are created to enter into that finished work, to, to live in that place, to enjoy what they're made for, to image God, to worship Him in, in creation. And we know what happens, that, that things fall apart, but Christ comes and restores that and finishes the work on the cross, and He will finish it fully. And the call here is to enter into that finished work, to rest in what He has completed. None of us could do it. We would do the opposite. God alone finishes the work of creation and recreation. And so we come and we rest 
and his finished work? Are you resting in his work? Are you relying on his work alone? Or are you striving to fix things yourself? He alone fixes things truly and finishes the work, and we rest in that and live out of that. And yes, indeed, when you do that, you will experience change in your life. You will experience victory over things that have sought to harm you or ways that you have done things you know are wrong. He will help you, but it's by resting in his finished work already done that you experience his life in you and through you. The finished work. Next, we see in this paragraph the word rest. It's two times. It says that he rested. Um, it's repeated in the call to honor the Sabbath as well. That this emphasizing, uh, we'll see it briefly soon, but, but this emphasizing our, the call to rest because God rested. And this is puzzling too in some ways, right? What does it mean that God rested? Was it just like so much hard work? I mean, I, I can understand it's hard work, right? Making the universe is hard work. And so God needs a divine nap after making the universe. He's tired, so he rests. Is that what's being said? No. God never rests, right? He neither slumbers nor sleeps, Psalm 121 tells us. He never rests. He never stops doing things. Never. He upholds all things. He, he made all things. He sustains all things. All things that are, are only continuing in existence because of his work, his activity. So he never rests. That's not what this is talking about. It must mean something else. It doesn't mean cessation from all activity. It's not a nap. There's something else going on. There's a, a different sort of activity. There's a, a different sort of cessation of activity and, and a different sort of activity employed going on here. Well, again, we have to look at the theme. What's, what's happening, right? This is a, a cosmic temple. And so our, can we look in Scripture at references to this idea of resting related to the temple and the tabernacle? Maybe that's how we'll best understand resting, what God means here. Is it, is it taking a nap? No, there's, there's other Scriptures. So let's look again at a couple other Scriptures. Isaiah 66, 1. Um, I read this already. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Hmm. Psalm 132. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You in the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. So this rest is a state of residing, enthronement, and receiving worship. It's a state where God is, is dwelling there. He's resting. He's, he's there. He's taken the throne. He's now, he's now in the place of being with us and receiving worship and interacting. It's this divine rest. It's cessation from building the tabernacle, and it's, it's enjoyment of its purpose. The temple is the place of his rest. It's his resting place. In a different sense, it's his residing place. It's his place where now he's going to interact and have communion with his people. That's what this rest is. Now that's important in understanding the Sabbath day. 
and understanding the rest we're called to on the Sabbath. Sabbath rest, we'll get there, but Sabbath rest isn't about taking a nap necessarily. Naps are good. Please take naps as you need naps. Nothing against naps, but that's not the objective of Sundays or Sabbath days. Now, it can be a component. Don't get me wrong, but it's not the essence. Divine rest is different. It's about worship. It's about enjoyment. It's about cessation from certain activity indeed, but employment of other activity, pursuit of worshipful activity. And we're called to this rest. It's a relational truth. Hebrews chapter 4, actually, the writer of Hebrews is concerned that the people of God uh, that he's writing to are, are going to miss and give up what they have. And, and so he it, it urges them to pursue this rest. He says in chapter 4, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Saying that it, that it remains, it hasn't been fulfilled, it needs to be pursued somehow. And then verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so the exhortation in Hebrews is to enter into that rest. Come to that place where you are trusting in the Lord, not yourself. And resting in him and his grace and finding your life there in his presence. There's a rest for you to enter. That's this holy, worshipful rest. That's the rest that it's speaking of. Again, we see pictures in Revelation that help us understand. This is the whole storyline of the Bible is connected because there's one author, capital A, behind it all. It's genius in how it's put together, so from beginning to end. So we look at the end of the Bible, we see a picture of what this rest looks like. The way it's described is, is this sort of rest. It says in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the fulfillment of Genesis 2, 1 to 3, in the final kingdom, the new creation. And it's a picture of that rest. In the presence of God, He's with us. There's no more tears. There's no more pain. There's no more sorrow. Just this blissful enjoyment and worship of God. That is divine rest. recent survey of Americans found that we are more exhausted than ever. One might think that the pandemic led to more rest, but it has not. Many are sleep deprived, suffer from insomnia. Many find their lifestyle schedules and habits leaving them exhausted. The pandemic has made it worse, not better. And the additional computer screen time has had negative effects, apparently. Additionally, the sense of well-being in our time is lower than it's been in a long time. In previous centuries, the sense of well-being was higher than it is now. Doesn't that make you wonder why? Because we live in one of the most prosperous times, certainly the most technologically advanced time. We have all this stuff. The average family is four times wealthier than the average family from the 1950s, so your grandparents, basically. Four times, you are four times wealthier in terms of your net worth of things you have. They didn't have all the stuff you have. They didn't have two cars. They didn't have a bedroom for every kid, and so forth and so on. Four times, and yet we're less happy, 
more exhausted. We are desperately need, in need of true rest. And the biblical rest we're called to isn't merely a cessation from activity, but a resting and residing and dwelling with God and all the grace that he grants us and all of his goodness and glory. It's living in faith and hope and love. It's enjoying his goodness and glory. Worship him, him on Sundays. We'll talk about this soon. But all of life, really, entering into that rest, living in that rest, living in the rest of the finished work of Christ. It is finished. I'm forgiven. I'm safe. I belong to him. He uses all things, even my hardships, for good. I can rest. And that rest has been opened up through Christ. And it is not It is ours. He says himself, right? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. That's the divine rest that Genesis 2 is speaking of. Finally, the seventh day, the holy day. We see seventh day emphasized three times here. It's Blessed and made holy. All the six days are leading up to this seventh day. Everything is done in preparation for the seventh day. And on this day, he's finished the work. He rests. He resides. He takes his throne. And now he calls us to lead in worship of our God on the seventh day. Notice that every other day ends, as I said before, with there was evening and there was morning, the Nth day, but the seventh day never ends. The seventh day never ends. It isn't meant to end. It's meant to be an eternal experience to rest and enjoy the goodness and glory of God. The seventh day doesn't end. And so that's why God says to his people under the Mosaic Covenant, you need to honor this day because it marks you. It actually is the truth of humanity. It's the truth you need to live in. And you as my people actually need to practice resting on the literal seventh day of each week as a sign and a celebration of your life in me. Can you see why it's at the core of their practice of of worship of God? Why the Sabbath is so important in in God's plans and under the Mosaic Covenant? It's part of the Ten Commandments, actually, right? It's the Fourth Commandment. Um, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath. That's a, a rest, literally. It's a rest to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It was a day to rest, to stop your normal work, for everybody to stop their normal work. And to enjoy the Lord, to rest, to be with family, to, to, as a synagogue culture developed, to worship in synagogues. If you were near the temple, to come and worship at the temple. It's a commandment. It's very serious. Actually, disobedience to that commandment was a capital offense, punishable by death. Exodus 31, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. 
Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Wow. Pretty serious. But I think if we see the theology, we can understand. God wanted to call the people to himself. He wanted them to understand what it is to belong to him. He wanted to shape them and transform their culture and their self-perception, their, their perception of God. So he calls them to this chief sign of the Sabbath. That actually is the chief sign of the Mosaic Covenant. It says that explicitly, Exodus 31. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. But this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations so that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. And later on, when the people of God stray from God, their, their disobedience and repentance is put in terms of Sabbath-keeping or not. So when Isaiah, in Isaiah 58, calls them to repentance, he frames it in terms of Sabbath-keeping. So he says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God calls them to repent and return and to express it by how they celebrate the Sabbath. And Isaiah again promises, speaks of the new creation in terms of Sabbath worship. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Pretty important, don't you think? Given all this, it's actually in the Ten Commandments. It's one of the Ten Commandments, rooted in creation itself. Given that, it's a capital offense to disobey. Given that it marks the eternal state, how are we to keep the Sabbath? Good question. Keep it, we must. The theology of the Sabbath holds for eternity and never changes. Understanding who we are, what life is about, what creation is about, what Christ has done, what he calls us to, what the church is about, what new creation is about, is all connected to our understanding of these truths of the Sabbath. The truths are eternal and unchangeable. But we need to study the scriptures and understand the new covenant and the things we're taught in the New Testament Connected to the Old Covenant, God doesn't change his mind, but the New Covenant is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is not the completion of that. So there are truths in the New Testament. As we look at the New Testament, we see a number of things that are very helpful to understand. First, the early church quickly changed their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. That was the practice of the church very quickly. And, and by the way, the early church was largely Jewish. They understood the difference. And they honored Sunday as their time of worship. So we see in Scripture examples of that. Uh, Acts 20, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, so that's speaking of their worship service, Paul talked with them, uh, intending to depart on the next day. And he pro prolonged his speech until midnight. That was a Sunday worship service that went on really late. Someone fell asleep, fell out a window. Paul had to raise them from the dead. That's not normal occurrence for Sundays. But anyhow, point being, they worshiped on Sunday. 1 Corinthians 16 as well talks about when you gather on Sundays, the first day of the week. Revelation 1.10, 1 
John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So it's very early on that they switched to Sundays as their worship day. Jesus also teaches us that he is Lord of the Sabbath. It says in Mark chapter 2, he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus came in and said, This Sabbath keeping, by the way, is, about, is, not, is not about you for the Sabbath. It's about the Sabbath being for you. It's for you to understand who you are, to enjoy what you're called to, to live in it. Let's not reorient this. Jesus is bringing correction and saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I get to determine how you do the Sabbath and how we understand it. So Jesus' teaching, New Testament teaching, is authoritative for us. Furthermore, if we look in Scripture, we see some things that, that teach us that, that Sabbath keeping is not, is, uh, as we see it in the Old Testament, strictly speaking, is no longer in force. We're not under the Old Covenant in that sense, strictly speaking. So Colossians 2, Paul says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you, speaking to this church that's largely Gentile, but Gentiles and Jews would have been in churches. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Romans 14. Uh, we went through this a little while ago. Paul's speaking to a church of Jews and Gentiles. He says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. I think it's very clear um, to understand this and, and understand how Scripture handles the, the, the Old Testament versus the New. Hebrews 10.1 says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It's speaking of the law as the Mosaic law. So it's a, it's a foreshadowing. Their practice is pointing to something to be fulfilled in Christ and in the New Covenant. So given these verses, it's hard to say and given this reality that it's already switched to Sunday anyhow, that it's exactly the same. The, the commandment to keep holy the Sabbath in the Mosaic Covenant has to be followed in the same ways now. And you're probably relieved because you'd be put to death otherwise, perhaps. None of us might be here. There are differences. The theology stands, though. So, so here both the, the weight of this truth is a creation ordinance, the theology that's here, but also here that the, the form is flexible because of the fulfillment of that. So Hebrews 10.1 talks about this, that, that these things were a shadow. There's a fulfillment. We know the fulfillment of it is actually Christ himself, right? Christ as the actual temple finishing the work. And now in Jesus, we enter that rest. To belong to Jesus, you actually are entering that Sabbath rest. You are, in, in Christ, experiencing the fulfillment of that. And so the particular day doesn't matter in the same way. Nevertheless, though, there's a comparison. There's a principle that remains. There's a comparison. So in Hebrews 10, the very place where it says the law was a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form, later on in that chapter says, verses uh, 23 and following, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so we practice the principle of the Sabbath. We practice in practical ways the theology of the Sabbath by gathering together regularly. It's a command. Yes, the command to keep the Sabbath holy, strictly speaking, doesn't remain over you in that way. Otherwise, you would have to actually do it on Saturdays, not Sundays. But we're nevertheless commanded to gather regularly, to come together as God's people, to follow the, to the implications of the theology of resting and to realize like this is, this is wise of God that in, in the pattern of seven days there's one day to rest, to cease from regular work, to, to practice the reality of, of what we have in Christ and in the, the divine rest that we have and resting in the Lord, enjoying Him, coming together to worship as His people, resting from your normal work if at all possible. Yes, there are exceptions that are understandable to this. Yes, it's acceptable every now and then maybe to go skiing on a Sunday. Maybe it's acceptable, it is acceptable to watch football for that matter. Yeah, you don't have to be put to death. But the problem that we can have is is making so many exceptions that we don't do it, right? And that's a real problem right now for the church, generally speaking. I understand. I understand the different reasons. There's lots of reasons, and there's lots of legitimate reasons. And, and so I could sit here and probably hear all the reasons why people aren't regular, and every one of them is understandable. But the problem is there's this general trend in the church to almost making Sunday gathering as part of that. There's more to Sunday worship, but Sunday gathering corporately as the exception versus the rule. In-person gathering. Again, we understand we, we, we have online for a reason. But it's not the best fulfillment of what's here. The experience of gathering on Sunday as his corporate people is an amazing privilege for us. We get to be in the, the presence of God in a powerful and profound way different than our own personal devotions, as important as those are. We get to be before his word and experience his grace as he reminds us of truths. We get to experience fellowship together. There's so many things that he's doing that are part of of the expression of this that are so important to us. Keeping the Sabbath in this way, I think, is vital. John Owen, the Puritan theologian and pastor, says the following in his very uh, 17th century way, but says this, for my part, I must not only say, but plead whilst I live in this world and leave this testimony to the present and future ages that if I ever have seen anything in the ways and worship of God wherein the power of godliness hath been expressed, anything that has represented the holiness of the gospel and the author of it, anything that hath looked like its prelude to the everlasting Sabbath and rest with God, which we all through grace uh, to come unto, it hath been there with them where and amongst whom the Lord's day hath been had in highest esteem. Let me translate. If you want to see any clear sign of vitality of God's people, 
individually and corporately. It's in a people who treasure gathering every Sunday and are serious to practice corporate worship, Sabbath keeping, and gathering for corporate worship every Sunday. To live out these principles, to experience them, to participate, to contribute to them. That's part of it too, isn't it? We come to serve one another in this. And there's other aspects of Sundays I could get into. There's all sorts of practices I could recommend to complement this. And part of that is maybe having people over, having a meal together. There's all sorts of things. But I want us to hear that this central aspect of corporate worship and the importance of it in Sabbath keeping. So, in conclusion, we've looked at this truth that the Sabbath is a profound and eternal reminder that we exist to enjoy God and worship Him forever. We've looked at this reality of the finished work. We've looked at this truth of divine rest that we have and we're called to live in. We've looked at this truth of the seventh day and the the principle and the practice of the seventh day. And the central truth of God calling us in this eternal reminder to enjoy Him and worship Him forever. Let me ask for you, how are you living according to these principles? Are you you prioritizing Sunday worship in person, if at all possible? Are you pursuing the sacred rest, enjoying the sacred rest by coming and gathering with God's people and then living perhaps the rest of the day in wise practices of that? What adjustments might you make? And I don't want you to hear guilt here, but an invitation, the same way that we hear it in Genesis chapter 2 as we read the story and we realize this is what it's about. What is God inviting you to do in regards to Sunday worship? Let's just take a moment and pray. Ask the Lord to speak to you on on that. He's gentle and he's clear. My, My guess is he'll give you something specific. Just one thing to think about. You don't have to change everything at once. But Let's just take a minute to be before the Lord because he loves us. He wants us to enjoy all that he has. And then Pastor Toby will transition us into communion.